As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Red Line, where we interview three geopolitical experts on one big issue shaping the news both here and overseas. And I'm your host, Michael Hillib. So I want to start this week by posing a puzzle to you. If you were made the leader of a national army, commanding one of history's famous battles like Waterloo, Gettysburg, or D-Day, and you could bring back one modern-day weapon with you, what would it be? I know when I had this question first posed to me, sitting in a crammed little train car in the backwaters of Romania, my first thought went to a modern-day machine gun, but those ran out of bullets pretty quickly. Then you think about a fighter jet, but fighter jets run out of fuel, and at some point you're going to need to land and sleep. So your mind goes to what the most expensive thing is, and you think, what about an aircraft carrier? Which, as great as carriers are, they're not nearly as effective without the planes that come with it. You see, the best answer to this question that I've ever heard came from the local chap sitting across from us in the train car, who we'd been chatting with for the last few hours. And his answer was surveillance satellites. You see, he explained that modern satellites would have won almost every battle through history. They would have seen Hannibal coming over the Alps. They would have seen the weather systems forming that sunk the Spanish Armada. They would have seen the British redeployments before the Battle of Trafalgar. They would have spotted the Japanese fleet steaming toward Pearl Harbor. And they even would have seen the Allies crossing the Channel to land in Normandy on D-Day, and knowing that it wasn't the faint attack. He went on to justify that satellite surveillance in the hands of a good general completely changes the direction of almost every single historical battle, far more than giving a time traveler a tank or a submarine or even a machine gun ever would. As when you understand what these satellites are capable of, they quickly distinguish themselves as an absolute scientific marvel, with the modern cutting-edge surveillance satellites being able to identify a brand of phone, or spot an aircraft carrier somewhere in the Pacific, or even create 3D models of the inside of bunkers and buildings, as well as how many people are inside each of them, or from the heights of space. The leaps and bounds in satellite technology have become some of the most impressive game changers on the battlefield today. But how are the major players attempting to solidify their position here? Why are Russia and China increasingly collaborating in space? What is the future of satellite surveillance technology, and what impact will it have on the battlefield? Well, to answer all that and more, we turn to our first guest. Part 1. There's always a bigger fish. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. There was this light bulb moment when the obvious became apparent, which is that international relations has moved into outer space. And all the things we're doing down here, I'm afraid we're repeating the mistakes and some of the good stuff, the cooperation and the science up there. Tim Marshall is a British journalist, author, and broadcaster specializing in foreign affairs and international diplomacy. Tim is one of the world's most renowned foreign correspondents and has gone on to write several massive geopolitical books, including the New York Times bestseller, Prisoners of Geography. Over the last few years, Tim has turned his attention and reporting prowess over to the burgeoning geopolitical theater that is space, even putting together a new book focusing on the subject. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. Without question, it's the big three, which is USA, China, Russia, probably in that order, but China catching up on the USA. Russia, a relatively declining space power. The Chinese have overtaken them just as they've overtaken them down here. And there's nobody anywhere near those three. If you go down to the second tier, you've got countries like Japan, which are doing all sorts of really interesting work in space, including cleaning space debris. You've got really technologically advanced countries like the UAE, which has sent a probe to Mars, which is quite a feat. Also in the second tier, you've got countries like Italy, which are doing great stuff technologically, not in space exploration, but in the equipment around space exploration. The British are pretty good at satellites. The Germans are getting there. The French are a space power and one of the few of the second tier that is looking into the military aspect of space power. But just about every country in the world is now trying to be a player in some form or other, and that's because the cost of entry has come down so much, partly due to SpaceX and Musk, and partly due to the technology allowing satellites to become so much smaller, therefore it's cheaper to get them out there. With the Americans being on the cutting edge of technology, we'll be talking about them a lot more later on in the episode. But for now, I want to ask you some questions about the Chinese space program. Here and back on Earth, when it comes to Chinese naval craft and Chinese aircraft, we often see Chinese designs being an adaptation of Russian blueprints. Do we also see this trend extending toward the Chinese space program? There used to be a joke that Chinese arms were simply Russian arms with Chinese characteristics. There's still a lot of truth to that in that the core of the Chinese space program was borrowed and actually, if you go back to the 70s, in some cases stolen from the Russians. But they really have done more than just adapt it. They have revolutionized it. They are a long way ahead of the Russians and the gap will widen between them. Both of them have done ASATs, direct ascent attacks. They've tested missiles that you fire from Earth at a satellite. I hasten to add... They only knocked out one of their own, but this was clearly a test to uh, see if they could knock out other people's. The Americans have done the same, so have the Indians. But the Chinese, they're putting more money into it. They're turning out more engineers, and they have the capacity and the willingness to fund it over the next decade. In direct contrast, the Russian space program has recently been experiencing some major budgetary shortfalls. Their upcoming Vostochny Cosmodrome is way behind schedule, and the Russian state space company Roscosmos just entered into a public spat with the government of Kazakhstan over a frankly tiny amount of $30 million, indicating wide-scale budgetary shortfalls throughout their organization. So why is the Russian space program experiencing so many financial problems within their space program at the moment? 
It's been a few years now, but the Ukraine war and the cost of the war is having a knock-on effect. I mean, you go all the way back, Cold War, it was very well funded. After the Cold War, it just about fell apart. Putin realized when he came to power that this was the future, you know, because he's very militarily minded. And he realized that in the very near future, which is now, war cannot be fought on the earth, a modern war without space technology. And so he began to fund it again. But as the squeeze has come on Russia recently, so the, the budgets are being cut left, right and center, and space is one of those budgets that's getting squeezed. It's, it's another reason, as I say, why the gap between Russia and China will grow. Back during the Cold War, Russia used to be well-renowned within the field of space surveillance, and they were often on the cutting edge of it. They've obviously fallen behind now, but is this still an angle that Moscow prioritizes with their space funding? You're right, they are very good at surveillance, and obviously they're going to try to keep up with that. But some of the tech that people are trying to prevent them from getting, you know, the super semiconductor chips, may hold them back. But I think they are going a lot for anti-satellite weapons, including dazzling, you know, shining lasers, blinding, and kinetic attacks in the short term via missiles fired from Earth. I mean, no, nobody's done that yet. Nobody has yet tried to take out an adversary satellite. I mean, that, that, I, that would constitute an act of war. But that doesn't mean that big powers are not rehearsing it and making sure that as and when the time comes, they're able to do it. And I think a lot of the Russian money is going into that. There's a base quite near the Chinese border that they're really sprucing up to meet these challenges. So yeah, dazzling, jamming, cyber attacks, hacking, blinding, whilst doing the research on ASAT attacks. And also, and ever again, everyone's doing this as well, the dual purpose things. The Japanese are doing great guns on, as I said, space debris clearing. But if you have a satellite that has robotic arms capable of catching a satellite, a defunct one, and throwing it into the atmosphere to burn up, well, obviously, that could be used to actually capture a functioning satellite. And again, I think everybody's looking at that with great interest. So you mentioned it earlier on, but can you take us through what an ASAT attack is? Yeah, just a direct ascent. You locate your satellite, you obviously calibrate the speed at which it's going, you calibrate the speed at which a missile you're about to launch will go, and you launch it, up it goes through the atmosphere into low Earth orbit, and it hits that satellite. And as I said, it's been done by several countries now, they've blown the satellites apart. There's some amazing technology where just in the last few seconds and even half seconds, the attack missile is making minute changes, but, but within sort of almost milliseconds to make sure the trajectory is exactly right. Because essentially you are hitting a bullet with a bullet and they've been dead on. The problem is that the tests cause enormous amounts of debris the Russian one, I think, caused more debris than, than had been created for, for years just in their one direct ascent attack. So it is hitting a bullet with a bullet, which at one point was thought impossible, but it, it is possible now. Russia's got this, China's got this, and America has got this, which is laser weapons, um, directed energy weapons. For example, the Americans took out a drone using a laser, and they've also fired one out of satellite in space, one of their own. Well, once you've mastered that technology, and that's a $1 shot, by the way, uh, once you've got the technology, actually firing the laser is a dollar instead of like $400,000 for a missile. It's a short step from that to putting them on satellites in space, as where you, therefore you can fire them in space, not at space. 
And again, I, I just don't see how these things are not going to happen if you just look back at the entire history of warfare and, you know, how one weapon evolves and other people rise to meet it. When you're talking about lasers, what sort of damage these lasers do to other satellites? Enough to fry their engines or fry their computer chips. And that's all you need. You don't have to blow them apart. You just have to fry the chips inside them. You can see it online, the American attack on, on a drone, one of their own when they were testing it. And it does look like Star Wars. All this stuff that we thought was sci-fi is actually sci-fact. There's a really interesting trend currently underway in the drone industry at the moment, where after years of everyone chasing the top-of-the-line drones, the cheaper Bayraktar TV2s have now come out and dominating the market by being able to do much of what the top-of-the-line drones can do, but for a far lower price. And because of this drop in entry price, we're seeing far more players enter the drone market and buy drone fleets, and far more use of drones across battlefields around the world. Whilst all that's been going on, we've also seen a flourishing of private space companies entering this particular domain. So are we seeing a similar trend play out here in the satellite market, where the lower price for entry into the market is causing more and more players to get involved? SpaceX pioneered the reusable rocket. So once you've got reusable rocket, you've seriously brought down the cost because a lot of the cost goes in that kit to build a rocket and get it up and then you throw it away. Not anymore. Now everybody's working on getting them back and using them and using them and using them. So if the cost of that has gone down and then simultaneously the size of the satellites, I mean, we now have cube satellites, which are the size of a Rubik's cube and they function very well. Countries like Nigeria are making their own satellites and putting them on things like SpaceX rockets or whoever will take them. And of course, whereas before you were putting something up that was the size of a fridge freezer, which is heavy and expensive, now you can just put up 20 Rubik's Cube and have a satellite formation at a fraction of the cost. And so dozens and dozens of countries are now in the space game. But if cost-cutting is the new name of the game, where do things like these Chinese surveillance balloons that we just saw shot down over the United States factor in? What's their use here? It's fascinating, isn't it? But yeah, I mean, it had kit on it which could intercept communications of all different sorts and pinpoint where they came from. So if you can circle around, and as far as I understand it, it had propellers and a rudder. If you can circle around a nuclear base, which is what it did, 150 nuclear silos it was over, you can pick up a picture of how much comms are going in and out of that base. You can photograph how many cars go in and out to that base over a certain time frame. And the listening devices can pick up the things that not necessarily you can't necessarily get from space. And as you pointed out, you've only got like an hour window or a two hour window if you're in low Earth orbit going over somewhere. And a lot of people think that, oh, they're looking for one particular thing. They're not necessarily, they're looking for piece of a jigsaw. And if you hover over that nuclear base for two hours and you log X, Y, and Z, and then you send, you transmit it up to the Chinese satellite, which then transmits it down to Beijing, you have just got a small piece of that jigsaw with which to make your picture. So I think it's still useful for that. I mean, obviously, you know that the new generation of sats can see through cloud and they can see at night, some of them, some of the really top end ones, but there still is a role for suborbital observation. A few years ago, we saw the announcement of the US Space Force. And since that announcement, many other countries have also announced their own Space Forces. 
So how much of an impact has the Space Force actually made? And how does the US's Space Force compare to other countries like Russia or China's forces? China has a space force, it's a different name. Russia has one. The UK has one, UK Space Command. It's based about 20 miles from where I am. The, the, the head of UK Space Force was kind enough to give me an interview for the book. And he explained to me something which I think is true of all the space commands, except possibly the French one, that they are not an attack force. They're not working on having super duper space planes that can do barrel rolls and fire at things. Their role is to enhance the capabilities of the existing forces. So, for example, if you have a special forces team in country X, it's very useful for them to have their encrypted comms going up to the SATs and the Space Command being able to tell them, A, we can see something 10 miles away and that this is what it is. And B, we happen to know that your opponent's satellite will be over you in 40 minutes time. Why don't you go for a quick lie down in a cave? So it enhances it in, in that way. It enhances it that they track missiles, that they help with the coordinates for the Air Force and, and the military and the Navy and doing what they do. So they, they actually, they're more of an enhancement to existing armed forces than an attack one. The French, they are looking at things like bodyguard satellites they're openly thinking about this, whereas most people are only privately thinking it, which is to put some form of kinetic weapon on satellites and have the ability to have an attacking mode and also to get in between something and a threat to a satellite. So it is all coming, but, but the space commands, I mean, you know, there is this misconception in some people that this is fighting at Star Wars level. Not yet. But there has been work for a long time for using satellites as a direct attack weapon whether it be the Thor's hammer program, which would launch a large metal rod toward Earth that would end up crashing down with huge amounts of energy and producing the explosive force of a small nuclear weapon, or programs to place first-strike nuclear warheads upon satellites, which could be launched once the satellite is directly over the target, this way avoiding the 30-minute warning you'd usually get if Russia was to, let's say, launch ICBMs towards the United States, and instead only give Washington a 30-second warning, which is nowhere near enough time to react or even counter. But with this in mind, are there more players looking at using satellites as a first strike weapon? Yes, and, and, and I think this is particularly dangerous. There's a number of aspects to that. One is the hypersonic missiles. I mean, you know, you, you launch a cruise missile, you know within seconds where it was launched from, and you know because of its trajectory, its arc, where it's going to land, more or less. So you know what the target is. So A, you know if the target is or is not you, and B you can attempt to shoot it down, and there is the kit to do that. With a hypersonic missile, it hasn't necessarily got an arc, so you don't know where it's going. And even when you think you might know, it suddenly changes direction at Mach 5 and above. That is a serious problem uh, for the nuclear age that we're in, because you don't know if that's going for your nuclear assets. And I'm not saying that somebody would therefore do first strike launch, but it makes you nervous. The other way, which I think we're back into this dangerous period, is if somebody did launch an attack on your satellites, and these were satellites that were connected to your early warning system, again, you might think this is the precursor to a nuclear strike. You know, other, why are they trying to take out my warning system? So you would, the temptation again is to go for first launch. So these are difficult areas. 
And so I was very keen to really hammer away at this point because I do think it's a dangerous time. I don't think certainly the general public is aware that these threats are now re-emerging. There are some that might not be aware, but many of the laws that we currently use for space are still based on the ones we use for international waters and are now decades old and woefully inadequate. As a bit of a thought exercise, if I were to go hire a private company registered in the UAE to launch a satellite that would then throw other companies' satellites back into the atmosphere, what is the legality around that and who would you actually confront? Would it be myself, would it be the company, or would it be the country that launched it? Right now, who would be legally responsible for me attacking other people's satellites? It's whatever lawyer you choose wants to call it, and that's the problem because we don't have the proper laws about it. And the United Nations Convention of Laws of the Sea are agreed by most countries, but the idea that they are applicable in space is only an opinion because they are a, a reasonably good template upon which to base your understandings, but they are not in any way legally binding out there. And we've, we already have an example just from last year. When the Russians invaded Ukraine, they knocked out in the first few days about a third of the Ukrainian internet. Elon Musk flies in thousands of Starlink terminals, Dishimuk flat faces, as I believe they call them, got the uh, internet back up and running, in those parts of Ukraine, which were internet-less. Happy days. The civilians can communicate with each other and call their loved ones. But the Ukrainian military, of course, can also better communicate now and uses those terminals to help target Russian soldiers and kill them. Does that make Starlink's satellites a legitimate military target for Russia? There is no answer to that because there are no real laws about that. So it's just another example of how we, we need to get up to speed. But if we talk about law, there's all the commercial aspects as well. And you'll know that the Artemis Accords has this weird clause in it about safety zones, that, that, that a signatory can declare a safety zone on the moon. That sounds an awful lot like a sphere of influence to me. And if I've got my shovel and spade out and I'm digging for a precious metal or helium-3 or whatever, and I've declared my safety zone and a Russian spacecraft lands next to me and get there, bucket and spade out, I can hardly say, well, according to the Artemis Accords, you can't do that because there's no legitimacy there. This barely even scratches the surface at how much of space is frankly uncharted waters legal-wise. But in some attempt to look into the future, what do you think the next big changes to shake up this theatre will be? If Artemis 3 is successful, which is actually landing a man and a woman back on the surface of the moon, I think that's going to um, trigger a, a huge resurgence of fascination and awe and inspiration about space. And building quickly on that will be the first moon, basic prototype moon base. And I think the technological advantages that will come within 10 to 12 years, I mean, they wanted a moon base by 2032, it's already slipping 2034-ish. The mining that will go on on the moon will give us theoretically the rare earth metals and, and, and precious metals of the sort that we need to fuel the 21st century technology. And I think there's going to be this symbiotic relationship between space travel and our technology down here, which will take us forward. 
And what I hope also is that the Helium-3, when they get it, will coincide with finally the breakthrough of managing fusion technology and give us free and clean energy. Those are mostly wishes, but I think there will be a huge acceleration with space technology and mining the amount of stuff we need, which will drive 21st century earthbound technology as well. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. For the Americans, the skies are becoming even more crowded, with China already putting up hundreds of extra satellites, and Russia using the little money they still have to instead focus on being able to build robot arms and kamikaze satellites, hoping to use their aggressiveness to zero out the uneven odds. And with Russia and China effectively working together in this domain, the US is having to move faster and faster just to maintain its place on the mantle. But what is this arms race pushing us toward? And what does the cutting edge of technology look like today? Well, to answer that, we turn to our second guest. Part 2. An Elegant Weapon for a More Civilized Age the biggest development has probably been commercial remote sensing really coming into its own. Seen this coming for a couple decades, but it really took the type of investment we're seeing in the private sector, the excitement in the venture capital space around the promise of the downstream results of commercial remote sensing as they could apply to myriad economic verticals. That promise has spurred a remarkable amount of investment way that launch has become less expensive, the way that technology has allowed things to continue to be miniaturized. All of these things sort of converge to allow this awakening, this arrival of the vibrant commercial remote sensing scene that I think many of us have anticipated for some time. Keith Masbach is the former CEO of the United States Geospatial Intelligence Foundation. And prior to joining the USGIF, Keith spent 20 years as an officer in the U.S. Army and in the government civilian service, culminating as a member of the Defense Intelligence Senior Executive Service of the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, or NGA. He held a variety of positions in the NGA, primarily focused on strategic planning and programming for the future of Army intelligence and serving as the Army's first Director of Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance Integration. Keith has also served as a member of the Intelligence Task Force for the Defense Science Board, and currently serves as a member of the Department of Commerce, National Oceanic, and Atmospheric Administration's Advisory Council on Commercial Remote Sensing. And his intelligence firm has become one of the most sought after in this particular theater. So we're thrilled to have him on the program today. I think we can be informed about what the United States government or any other government can do with their sensitive classified systems by what we're seeing in the commercial world. A company like Maxar publicly selling imagery down 30 centimeters, expanding the spectrum beyond the traditional electro-optical imaging and adding in, getting at different parts of the spectrum, giving you more information. 
So as you look at this unfold in the commercial world, I think it is not a stretch that you could imagine what occurs in the classified world in the, in the more sensitive space is as good or better. And imagine that these capabilities have existed there longer and that they are more advanced in their ability to rapidly cross tip and queue among these different types of sensing capabilities. So let's unpack a few things from that. For the audience, when you're referring to centimeters, you're referring to centimeter size as a part of spatial resolution. And this refers to the size of one pixel. In layman's terms, how clear the images these satellites take of the ground actually are. To put all this in context, the most clear images that you would see on something like Google Earth would be taken at around 25 centimeters per pixel. And at this resolution, you can make out road markings, buildings, etc. The US government has publicly acknowledged they have satellites at up to 10 centimeters per pixel. And at this resolution, you'd be able to make out individual people and markings on cars. Government leaks, however, have indicated that the most advanced US satellites are supposedly capable of between 1 and 2 centimeters per pixel at which resolution the user will be able to see clothing details, identify a model of phone, and even bits of trash sitting on the floor all the way from space. In short, the smaller the centimeters per pixel, the more high resolution the photos it takes will be. Now, obviously, we won't confirm or deny any of those leaks, and for now, we'll stick to what the US government has publicly acknowledged. So with what we publicly know about the US capabilities, how does that compare to where the private sector is sitting at the moment? If you look at what the United States government has acknowledged, things that they have declassified from you know, several decades ago, we get a glimpse into what the state of the art then was in the classified world. And you could begin to extrapolate you know, what those capabilities might be today. There are obviously limitations in terms of the laws of physics and so forth. But as you see what is available in the commercial sector, you could imagine that it's much more capable. And then that's along the entire stream. So whether it's from tasking to the collection piece to the communications piece to downstream analytics and the application of artificial intelligence supported by machine learning to the outcome, getting that information to someone who has to make a decision and or take action, that those timelines are increasingly compressed. So again, we see openly what's available in the commercial world and we just have to sort of extrapolate what you could possibly do with more processing power, less limitations on the amount of money you're able to spend to get certain outcomes. And you could begin to imagine what could happen in the classified world. Obviously, spatial resolution is important, but what else factors into their capabilities? We get very hung up on spatial resolution, but I think it's much more helpful to think about this in several dimensions. So spatial resolution is one aspect. Temporal resolution is another critically important aspect. So how often can I see the same place on the earth per week, per day? And, and then there's spectral resolution. So in what discrete parts of the spectrum am I able to sense and learn about a place and so it really becomes, you know, kind of think about going to a whiteboard and saying, what are the combinations of spatial resolution and temporal resolution and spectral resolution that I need to learn about any specific discrete area or piece of equipment for a specific mission outcome? And when we see a company like Planet that's able to image the, just about the entire world every day, they would contend uh, early on in, in some of their marketing that temporal resolution has a, has a value all its own. The ability to see something far more often 
may allow you to accept lower spatial resolution if it's good enough. I may not need a very high spatial resolution, but if I have a high temporal resolution, I can discern the answer that I need for the mission application I have. Seeking increased temporal resolution makes sense, as if the satellite takes a snapshot every day of the same area, it makes it much easier to go back through those images and track day by day things like tank buildups or exactly when a village was burned down. But what does extra spatial resolution afford you? What does the US gain from, let's say, 5 centimeters per pixel versus 50 centimeters per pixel? Having higher resolution in any of those types that I just articulated is what we're always striving for in the remote sensing world. But there's a price for that. And again, there are limitations just by the, the laws of physics in terms of what you're able to do. In order to get a high spatial resolution, you, know, you have to get a larger aperture. And getting a larger aperture, polishing a, a mirror of that size, and then integrating that into a much more complicated, much more expensive spacecraft that weighs much more and is larger in form factor, which requires a larger, more expensive launch, right? So there's all these things that you've got to consider in terms of your pursuit of ever higher spatial resolution. And I think, again, what we're discovering in the commercial world is it's not all about spatial resolution. Of course, if you have a higher spatial resolution, uh, just like if you had a telescope at home and you were looking up into the heavens, um, being able to see uh, the difference between seeing that there are craters on the moon uh, or being able to see that indeed you can discern topography on the moon or you could see some evidence of where humans have actually been or you could actually see something that was left by humans on the moon. And that's all facilitated by the level of spatial resolution, the power of your telescope. And there's this often insatiable demand by commanders, by decision makers, by diplomats uh, for ever more precise information from remote sensing or from any other source of intelligence data they may be able to access. And it's a matter of how much do you want to spend to get at that capability. And the capabilities for these satellites are growing exponentially, with the major powers now increasingly using LiDAR-equipped satellites capable of mapping out an indoor room like a bunker or building, as well as how many people are inside at that time, all done from space, which, as you understand, could provide them some seriously useful information. So can you take us through some of these capabilities? The state of the art, this idea of getting at indoors and underground is really becoming a hot topic. Being able to image and derive three-dimensional data from imaging. But it's really about the fusion of lots of different types of data. Let's say you're looking at an adversary country and you're trying to understand a facility that they have and tell you, well, buildings that are built like this usually have this type of structure inside. I can see where the windows are. I can see where the doors are. And I can imagine where the support beams are. And that tells me the number of floors that might be in that building, what the square footage is inside that building. I can see the power grid, perhaps, that feeds that building, that gives me the idea of what the industrial capacity of that building is. I might be able to see what comes out of that building after a chemical process. That would give me more information about what occurs in there. The ability to get LIDAR sensors inside of a building and map that in a precision way in three dimensions and add that to the imaging that you might have done from the outside, maybe with airborne LIDAR to be able to paint with a very precise measurements of what's going on inside. It is a multi-pronged process, whether you are trying to characterize a specific facility 
that might be of high interest, or you are trying to understand, say, an entire small village, and you're trying to characterize what we call the pattern of life there. And that could be from drone imagery, that could be from images from space, that could be from ground-derived handheld photography. And again, that could be from even on your iPhone, being able to use LiDAR to map uh, the inside of a room and then put that all together in a very rich data set that begins to reveal some of those things. Obviously, this is very impressive technology, but can you take us through how LiDAR actually works? So it's light detection and range. And I mentioned synthetic aperture radar earlier. So synthetic aperture radar, think about the radar speed detection that, that police forces use. It's sending out a radar energy. It's bouncing off the car that's approaching the police officer. And then that radar energy, much of that radar energy is making it back to the radar gun, right? The emitter. And then it's simply a matter of math because it, the radar energy is traveling at a known rate. And so the difference in that known rate tells you the speed of the car. So it's pretty simple math equation to sort that out. So that's radar energy. We also use, so we use that uh, from airborne sensors and from space. Spacecraft shooting down radar energy. It's going to hit, say, the top of a roof of a building just a bit before it's going to hit the ground. Then that radar energy is reflected back to the satellite. And you're doing, again, a mathematic equation to understand, okay, I can see that the top of the building is here. I can see that the ground is here. And now I understand the exact height of the building because of the difference in the time of arrival of that radar energy back to the satellite. LIDAR is a very similar process. Uh, they're using lasers, in fact, that police use now to judge your speed. They're shooting out uh, laser, they're shooting out photons. Those photons hit your vehicle. They're going back and they're collected at the source, at the gun the, the police officer is using and understanding that that light is traveling at a known rate, you can understand the difference and know precisely how fast that car is going. LiDAR sensors from aircraft, manned aircraft, drones, spacecraft are bringing light energy down, right? So light detection and ranging. And then those photons arrive back at the emitter, at the source, they're collected. And then it's, again, it's a mathematical equation the beauty of photons is that they get down, they bounce around. So some of those photons, for instance, will make it through trees if you're sensing, say, from an aircraft. And so they're going to get down, make it through leaves and get down and be able to bounce back. Some of those photons are inevitably going to make it back to the emitter. And you're going to be able then to understand, let's say, if there's a tank hiding under the trees you would be able to have painted that a little bit with these photons and be able to understand that picture. So LiDAR is a great sensor. It provides this phenomenal information because of, of how those photons of light bounce around, paint objects, um, and give you a really a, a great 3D picture of what it's sensing. So usually most satellites have two times of orbits which will be the satellite going around and around the Earth, usually coming over the same spot about every 90 minutes. So this will be going right around the Earth, taking pictures the whole time. On the other hand, you have geostationary, where the satellite is locked into one spot and follows that around the Earth as the Earth spins, staying locked on and following that patch of dirt as it orbits, with surveillance satellites being in geostationary orbit being particularly useful for, let's say, 24-hour surveillance of large Chinese naval facilities. But taking into account the limitations between these two options, 
how would you track a moving object like, let's say, an aircraft carrier? As geosynchronous orbit would only catch it once as it goes around its cycle, and it may have changed directions between cycles. And geostationary will lose that aircraft carrier as it leaves port. So with these limitations in mind, using satellites, how would you actually track something moving like an aircraft carrier? Having done that professionally in, in my time in the government, it's about using multi-source, multi-source integration. So I would use signals intelligence spacecraft to see where that aircraft carrier is emitting. And then I would use that to tip and cue over to my imaging satellites. In the commercial world today, you're able to do that with RF collection satellites uh, owned by Hawkeye 360, a U.S. company, Cleos out of Luxembourg with a, a U.S. subsidiary, Unseen Labs out of France. So there are a variety of these companies that have launched RF, radio frequency satellites. And as they go around, they're collecting that energy that's coming off ships, radars, and so forth. And then once you have that positioning, you get pretty precise positioning off that if you've got the requisite number of spacecraft in that collection plane. Um, then you tip over to a radar satellite and or electro-optical satellite that's going to be coming over and then use that then because it's uh, as big as an aircraft carrier is in the grand scheme of things in the middle of an ocean, it's big ocean, very little ship. So you don't want to be using your precious resource of an electro-optical or even a radar satellite to go searching necessarily over a broad area more likely to do that with radar than, than electro-optical, but you would use that radio frequency energy to give you the idea of exactly where you would task. And then you can track that over time. If the ship is emitting, you know, it's, it's beacon that it's required to have for in, in commercial navigation areas, then that's easy to pick up. But even when it's not, it's inevitably has a radar emitters and radios and so forth that can be picked up by those RF satellites. But looking at some of the names you put forward there, does the U.S. often work with these private companies to gain this sort of intel? Prior to the proliferation that I discussed earlier of commercial remote sensing capability, the government kind of was on its own, right? The U.S. government acting in conjunction with things that allies had, certainly, but largely thinking that it had to build out the space-based capability to meet its warfighting diplomatic, you know, what have you, intelligence requirements. With the growth of commercial remote sensing and the significant investment that's been made in the public sector, you see that the United States government very openly talks about what they term a hybrid architecture, which is if in the totality of requirements I have as uh, being responsible for imaging decisions, the use of these remote sensing assets, what can best be achieved by commercial means and what should we reserve for the very capable, more limited resources that are in the classified world? And how do they work together? So it's about the best allocation for the best use of the asset and then understanding how they can work together. So again, this idea of a hybrid architecture. So it's really a single space-based sensing architecture. It just happens to have a commercial component as well as a classified component. But these are private companies. So what stops them selling this same information they provide into the US to let's say the Chinese or the Russians? That's a great question. These are managed under their contractual 
relationships, whether it's the US government, the Australian government, Canadians, others. So these companies have to make decisions about what's best for their business model. They would price into entering into a contractual obligation, say with the United States government, the fact that the US government may say, I don't want you populating the things that I request in your archive for 30 days, let's say, certain things for 30 days after I ask for them. I want you to mask the fact that I, the US government asked for these images. So when they show up in your archive, there's no way for anybody to know who was requesting them. So there are a number of things placed into these contracts recognizing that if these commercial companies are indeed going to be part of this hybrid architecture, there needs to be protections put in. And the companies, not just worried about the protection of the data and all the things that their government customer is naturally going to be concerned about, are they for profit. And so it's about how do they make money? The things that these restrictions may cause them to lose, in, in your case, uh, the, the ability to sell perhaps to the Chinese, They've got to make up for that in terms of how they do their pricing. So the more restrictive of a license that a government may want with a provider, probably the more it's going to cost them. And that's, that's a natural give and take of the business process and the requirements for for-profit companies to stay in business and to meet the expectations of their shareholders. If one of the main jobs of these satellites is to provide aerial photography and the US government is spending so much money to get it, then why wouldn't they just double down on things like high-altitude flights using vehicles like the old Blackhawks or U-2s? What do you get from an expensive satellite that you don't get from these overland flights? Yeah, the Global Hawk is a medium to high-altitude aircraft drone that is quite capable, roughly the size of a 737. The U-2 still going strong, you know, an aircraft that has its origins back in the 1950s. It's a it is a very different aircraft in terms of its capabilities today that, than, than what it had then. One of my past jobs was the director of uh, the Source Operations Group at our National Geospatial Intelligence Agency here in the States. And what I always said was I wanted the biggest number of resources in my kit bag so when someone came through the door and had a challenge, had a problem, and was looking for support, that I could hear them, I could understand them, I could understand their time constraints, I could understand their the level of detail they needed, and I could look into this rich kit bag of resources and apply the right ones to get them the answer they needed in the time frame they needed. And so having small UAVs at the tactical level or the predator UAV at the operational or, or getting up higher to uh, the Global Hawk and the U-2 and then to space, uh, commercial space, classified space, I wanted like to, I wanted like a buffet, right? I wanted the, the greatest set of optionality I had to make sure that I could be responsive. And you know, getting back to your sort of very specific original question, it's about flexibility. Spacecraft are going at a known rate in a relatively known orbit, whether they are in low Earth orbit in terms of most of the imaging remote sensing spacecraft higher again, as you referred to earlier at GEO for some of the signals intelligence spacecraft. Flying an airplane gives you a lot more flexibility. I can fly at time at the time and place of my choosing, uh, depending on the air defense posture of where we're flying. And so that's asynchronous. That's allowing me to understand and get looks when maybe my adversary doesn't anticipate, can anticipate. 
uh, the ability to do some station keeping, the ability to get there and stay there, whereas satellites generally, again, in the imaging regime of, of low Earth orbit, are going by pretty quickly and before they come around again. So it's, it's just, again, it's, a, it's another part of that rich set of tools to use to meet the needs of a particular intelligence consumer. So having watched this industry develop over the last few decades, what do you think the next big development will be in this theater? The killer app that we're coming on now is the ability to do laser cross-linking of data in space and the ability to actually push processing into space. We talked about, we've talked about for many years, OBP, onboard processing. But think about putting very capable processing hardware, GPUs, you know, a cluster of GPUs in what is functionally a data center on orbit. Imagine a imaging spacecraft coming by, collecting imagery, laser cross-linking it to a satellite that is essentially a data center on orbit, analytics software running on that very capable data center processing architecture, and then being able to bring down just the answer. We have struggled for years with these big bandwidth requirements. How much could an imaging spacecraft store as its imaging before it has to be able to find a ground station and link down and dump all that data? And what's the cost of being able to store that data and push that data down? And what is that doing to the battery cycles and your ability to do imaging? The thought that we could do all of this in space and only bring down maybe, you know, what does a commander need to know? I need to strike this target with a hypersonic weapon. I have found this target. I see this target. Before I hit fire, I just need to know whether that target's still there. It's binary. I don't need to see the picture. I just need to know. All that could be done in space and a yes or no could come down to that commander who makes the firing decision to fire that hypersonic missile. And what does she need to know after that? The next thing she needs to know is, you know, has the target been effectively struck? What's the damage assessment? That may need to be a picture that someone takes a look at. Maybe the analytics software could manage it. Maybe it's something that needs human eyeballs, but then it goes through battle damage assessment and then it's strike, or in this case, make a decision about restrike if you haven't brought the level of damage that you required to service that target. So in that case, the idea of how much of that processing you could move to happen on orbit really changes the equation of how we've traditionally done things with the ground segment and the communication segment and the space segment. That's really shaking everything up and there's a lot of exciting things happening around that concept that I think are really gonna be game-changing in the near term. So the U.S. had built up some of the most impressive capabilities here in space, able to do many things that even just a few years ago would be disregarded as science fiction, but are now just part of Washington's deep and growing orbital arsenal. But throughout all these strengths, there is a weak point. You see, as impressive as these satellites are, they also have paper-thin walls, easy-to-fry sensors, and operate in a theater where a tiny nudge in the wrong direction will send them plummeting straight back down to Earth to burn up in the atmosphere. So how does the US plan on solving this problem? How do you protect the satellites that you rely on so much? Can you shoot down anti-satellite missiles? Can you give your satellite the ability to counter robotic arms? And should the US be looking to build hyper-aggressive satellite-on-satellite capabilities to hopefully act as a deterrence to others? Well, to answer that question, we turn to our final guest. Part 3. 
starting down a dark path? So I think that the development of commercial space has been a game changer in many ways. From the operational view capabilities that these new systems are providing and the technology that they're developing, there are a lot of commercial space companies that are coming on board and introducing new capabilities and technologies that are going to be very disruptive in the future. George Nakuzi is a senior engineer with the RAND Corporation's Project Air Force, as well as the National Security Research Division. He's also a member of the Party RAND Graduate School faculty, with his research specializing in the assessing and performance of space systems, including system resiliency, commercial space contribution to national security, traditional and non-traditional space domain awareness, as well as hypersonic missiles, nuclear command and control strategies, and orbital communication systems. George is also part of the senior technical staff in the Aerothermal Analysis Department and led groups in the Rock Propulsion Department and Mission Analysis for Northrop Grumman. And we're thrilled to have him on the program today. I mean, most communication satellites have been in GEO. And with the introduction of these new constellations of proliferated LEO, it, it has changed things. It has forced a lot of companies to change, to improve their capabilities. It's introducing things and forcing companies to evolve. And potentially, if you don't, you'll go out of business. And for the audience, just to clarify here, LEO refers to low Earth orbit, also known as geosynchronous orbit. These are the surveillance satellites that go around and around the Earth, photographing multiple countries as they pass through. GEO refers to geostationary orbit, which as a reminder, is where the satellite hovers over the same patch of dirt as the Earth rotates. Both GEO and LEO are used for reconnaissance, but they're also both used for electronic surveillance. So can you take us through what is electronic surveillance? We talk about space-based surveillance. So there's something called SIGINT, which includes electronic intelligence. SIGINT includes more than ELINT, right? So we're talking about electronic intelligence, but SIGINT also includes communications intelligence, comment, which basically is, as you might guess, intelligence on communications, you know, intercepting communication. Could be voice, could be also like emails or whatever. When we talk about ELINT, we're talking about signals that are not communication signals. So there are electronic signals that are being emitted, for example, from radars, could be from other electronic systems. And with an ELINT, you can think about both the technical side in terms of, okay, what does this waveform look like? What is the capability of this device, right? A radar, you know, what kind of, kind of radar is it? What band does it operate in, et cetera, et cetera. The operational side, so that would be under ELINT again. So you have the technical side, which I just talked about, and the operational side, which is how you use it or how the owner of that system uses that system, right? How often do they turn it on? How long do they turn it on for? Where do they place it? How do they move it? Uh, things like this. Being able to identify a system signature is impressive, but how would you locate and track down a moving target with active electronic countermeasures, something like a moving aircraft carrier? What would be your process there? It depends on the operational situation. It depends where you are. It depends how far away you are. It depends on what kind of capabilities that the target you're tracking has in terms of defenses. So if you're using a satellite, if you're using a low orbit satellite, low earth orbit satellite, then you need multiple satellites, right? Because a low earth orbit stays over a certain area for just a handful of minutes. So you would need to have a constellation of these LEO satellites, low Earth orbit satellites. If it's a satellite in GEO and you're within that field of regard or the field of view of, of that satellite, so basically that satellite, it's in a position where it can see that vessel or that target, 
then as long as you're within the field of regards or field of view, so basically within access of the satellite, you only need one satellite. Now, the difference between GEO and LEO, obviously, in GEO, you're much further up, right? You're, you know, 34, 35,000 kilometers up versus a LEO satellite or low Earth satellites, which is, you know, about a thousand kilometers or so, you know, it could be a few hundred kilometers to a thousand kilometers or plus or minus. So there are different capabilities, right? As you can imagine, something that's that far away in GEO the resolution is not going to be as good as if you were doing it with a satellite much closer to you, like a thousand kilometers versus 35,000 kilometers. So depending what, the, what kind of phenomenology you're using, whether you're using a, uh, like a passive system like EOIR, where you're taking imaging, like an imaging system, or if you're looking at SIGINT, like we talked about a little earlier. So basically you're looking for signals. If you have a SIGINT satellite, you're just looking for emissions from somewhere from, you know, so you said you're looking for something in the ocean. So you're looking for signals being emitted. Once you find these signals, what you might do is you might take these signals to get an approximate location and hand it over to other satellites like a uh, imaging satellites to go take a picture and make sure that this thing is what you think it is. Again, so it depends what you're trying to do. It depends on uh, the targets you're going after and it depends what your capabilities are. Now, if you don't have any coverage and you can access those things with an unmanned air system, that would be good too, but then you have to worry about defenses, right? Because these UAVs may be susceptible to intercepts by other fighter aircraft or from air defenses. Satellites, they're not as vulnerable as a UAV or a balloon. So as much as we talk about GPS as the basis for all our navigation, in reality, it's just the American version of it. The Europeans have developed their own constellation, the Chinese have their Baidu system of navigation, and the Russians have the GLONASS navigation system. The Russians built this entire constellation of global positioning satellites so they could never be cut off in the event of a war with the West. As much like how the Americans use the GPS, the Russians rely on GLONASS to help guide everything from precision rockets to fighter pilots carrying out missions. But during the conflict in Ukraine, we've seen numerous Russian pilots and Russian ground crews struggle to connect with the GLONASS system, and instead switching back over to using GPS. So can you take us through why they might be having trouble connecting to the Russian GLONASS system on the battlefield in Ukraine? So these signals coming from these, call them PNT, uh, position navigation and timing signals, they're very weak actually, so they're easy to jam. So jamming is one way and cyber is another way, right? So you can use cyber means to try to affect the signal. So you can spoof the signal potentially, or you can interfere with some other parts of that system. So there are different ways of doing it, but it's, it's not that difficult to jam. So could a satellite, for example, disrupt a naval vessel's GPS and make it think it was, let's say, in international waters, when in reality, it might actually be sitting in an enemy nation's territorial waters? Or could it feed incorrect navigation information to a missile and direct it to hit the wrong spot? If jamming is possible, is manipulation also possible? Yeah, there are different things that, that can be done. You know, one approach that people talk about is basically you have a transmitter or a receiver and transmitter, let's say on the ground or somewhere else, it receives the GPS signal and it, it changes it. It changes the position, for example, and it sends it with a stronger signal power and sends it to the receiver of the target. So basically, if I'm a ship or an airplane, instead of getting the original GPS signal, I would get this fake signal, the spoof signal. Now, there are ways to protect against this if you encrypt the signal. So there are uh, things you can do, but essentially what you said is correct. So moving on to surveillance for a bit, 
Obviously, all of the major players are in a bit of an arms race at the moment to produce the best resolution pictures for surveillance. But what does, let's say, 10 centimeters per pixel grant you over 50 centimeters per pixel? Why put all the effort into this arms race? She compared, let's say, I think you mentioned uh, something like 10 centimeters or 50 centimeters. So if you just want to compare the two there, there is a major difference from, from any aspect. So for intelligence missions, there is more value potentially in getting the higher resolution because they're looking for very specific things. They may be looking for a car. They may be looking for uh, very small objects or relatively small objects that they need higher resolution for. For military use, you may not need as much. From a military point of view, if you're looking for, are there any fighters on this base? What kind of fighters? Is it a bomber? What kind of bomber? Or for a Navy, you know, what kind of ship? So you don't need these really, really high resolution. What you would prefer to have is be able to see things on a more consistent or persistent way. So I would rather be able to go look in this area every five minutes. And I, I'm willing to take a, a low resolution, you know, the 50 centimeters. So by doing that, I can afford to build more satellites, uh, smaller satellites, and proliferate them. So it's a pretty complex trade study in terms of, do I need the 10 centimeters? What is my mission? I don't know if you're familiar with the system called OPIR, Overhead Persistent Infrared System, which is the U.S. system for missile, basically missile warning. And most of it is in geo. And you don't need high resolution. You just want to be able to see a rocket taken off. So they put these satellites in geo because they want to get as much coverage as they can with a minimal number of satellites. Then they want to get persistent look over certain areas. Once these satellites are up and in position, they'll usually stick to a very predictable orbital path. And we can usually be pretty certain of where that satellite will be going forward. But with all these countries putting more and more covert satellite surveillance up there, is there a way for a country to hide its satellites to make it more difficult to locate them with a telescope or with targeting software? It is hard to hide satellites, especially the large ones. But, you know, for small satellites, there are things called CubeSats, for example, which are little cubes. <laughs> That's what they're called, CubeSats, that are 10 centimeter per side. And these things are pretty small, right? So they're much harder to see. So it's much harder to track. And, you know, it gets a little bit more complicated because also what you could do is you can have other satellites carry a larger satellites, carry these smaller satellites and release these small things when you're not looking. So you would not know that a satellite was released. You could not do that with a big satellite, obviously, because to your point, if we see, you know, there's a rocket launch and it's got this big, huge satellite on it, all you have to do is just keep track of this rocket somehow. And then you'll see where the satellite is being released and you can track it, right? You can just keep an eye on it and you see where it goes. With the smaller satellites, it becomes more complex. So you may lose some satellites that way. There's a bit of a problem that all of these major space players will face in the event of a conflict between each other. Each side knows that the other's satellites will provide them huge advantages on the battlefield and surveillance, communications, and even the potential first strike capabilities, and will very likely have an urge to want to shoot down the other party's satellites early on, but at the same time being aware that exploding a satellite in space breaks that satellite up into tens of thousands of little pieces, all flying around at 17,000 kilometers or faster per hour, like tens of thousands of little bullets, which will then subsequently rip through anything else they come into contact with, which in turn creates more debris, which in turn creates more bullets, which in turn creates more debris, which in turn makes more bullets. And this goes on and on and on exponentially. With all the science here knowing that shooting down a handful of satellites with missiles could create an exponential amount of debris in the orbit, 
how likely do you actually think it is that any of these big three players would use their anti-satellite missiles? That's a great question. And there are a lot of people trying to figure out what would opponents do. So as you might imagine, on the US side, we would not want to increase the debris that we have out there. And to your point, it can get out of control very fast, right? One nation starts shooting down satellites, uh, the other, other nation wants to retaliate and start shooting down other satellites. And before you know it, you have an out of control situation where the debris has gone out of control and starts growing exponentially. And you might be familiar with the uh, Kessler effects, whereby there's a critical point at which after you create so much debris, things just become unstable. Everything basically gets hit, gets impacted. There, there was that movie, Gravity, with Sandra Bullock, if you remember it, where you see all the space junk floating around and just, I mean, the, the debris just builds on itself and that's what happens. I'm assuming that nations, including Russia, China, and obviously the US, would probably try not to do that for as long as they can. There could be a point at which a nation would think, well, it's not, I'm losing the war and I would rather lose my satellites if it's going to hurt my opponent, my enemy more than it's going to hurt me. So that's a possibility. So we don't know how countries are going to react, how nations are going to react, but they're aware of the risks and they are working, as you mentioned, you know, the laser, uh, laser weapons and such. You know, you have a ground laser that's dazzling or potentially trying to destroy some satellites in space where you're not creating debris, right? You may create, maybe you'll create one piece of debris, but if you only destroy the, the, the sensor, basically you just have a mission kill, but the satellite is still controllable. And even if you destroy the satellite itself in terms of damaging it beyond, so it lose control, it's just one piece of debris, right? So it's easier to track than creating thousands of pieces of debris with a kinetic kit, right? A direct ascent ASAT. And what would happen if someone was to pull the trigger on this option? And we do see our satellites no longer working, and the entire orbit becomes somewhat unviable due to the flying debris. What would be the immediate effects felt here on the ground? It would be substantial. There's been a few papers that talk about how reliant we are as a society on GPS, basically PNT, on PNT signals, right? Everything from financial institutions to obviously aviation to you and I using navigation systems, uh, farmers, all kinds of uh, services on earth would be disrupted and cause some serious, serious setbacks to the economies. Now, just to clarify, you know, taking a step back here, when we were talking about, so GPS is in a, uh, what's called a MEO orbit. So it's not in LEO. I'm not suggesting that we should, but that anybody should, but if they destroy LEO, let's say, you know, the LEO orbit where it becomes unusable, GPS will still be okay for a while because they're in a higher orbit. So they still be able to operate. Having said that, if a nation is going to attack LEO, they're probably going to attack also GPS potentially and destroy that. So yes, the impact would be tremendous on uh, the whole world for many, many services. The introduction of branches like Space Force arguably sped up the arms rest here in space, with each side looking more and more into satellite versus satellite killing capabilities, or anti-satellite missiles, or even truck-mounted dazzling lasers. And this arms race is only continuing to speed up. So do you think the US should try and step back and look to bring in a disarmament process between the major players here in this theater? Or frankly, is the genie out of the bottle now? And all sides now need to look at arming themselves and creating sufficient deterrence against the other one. If you were the US president, what would you recommend? It's probably going to have to be a multi-pronged approach. Unfortunately, it's a little bit too late to say that space is not going to be uh, militarized. It's obviously too late to change that. 
all the major nations, China, Russia, and the US have been looking how to affect these capabilities, right? How to potentially disrupt them. So in terms of what the US should do, and to some extent is doing, it's like I said, it's, it's gotta be a multi-pronged approach whereby you try diplomatic means to establish norms of behavior in space. To your question earlier, let's not use direct ascent ASAT. And as you might know, the U.S. has unilaterally promised basically not to have any more direct ascent testing or capabilities, I guess, but certainly not no direct ascent testing. And some other European nations have joined that train. China and Russia have not agreed to that yet, at least. And hopefully they will. It's obviously, right now, things are pretty, uh, pretty tense between these three nations. The other thing is you probably need to develop both offensive and defensive, unfortunately. From a defensive point of view, I think it makes a lot of sense to build resilient architectures. So which basically what you're doing here is making it clear to an opponent, somebody who attacks you, it doesn't matter what you do. You can shoot down two, three, four, five, ten of my satellites. I'll still be able to do my job, right? Because I have thousands of satellites. I also have other means potentially in other domains to back this up. But building resilient systems in space would be one of the first things that I would recommend. And this is actually what the Space Force is doing. They're looking at developing their future architectures. One of their uh, priorities to develop is to have uh, resilient space capabilities. But unfortunately, also when you have offensive just as a deterrent, as part of the deterrent. I mean, deterrence is going to be both the offensive and the defensive where you say, okay, if you attack me, it's going to cost you more than it costs me. It's, I'm still going to have these capabilities, and I'm going to retaliate against you, and it's going to cost you more. So it has to be a multi-pronged approach. I mean, let's protect space, because if we destroy Leo, if we get into this Kessler syndrome, it's going to be bad for the whole world, and we're all going to lose. So hopefully nations will come together and agree to some sort of uh, norms of behavior to avoid this kind of situation in the future. Diplomacy does sound nice, but you've also been watching this theater for a very long time, and you can probably see long-term trends forming. So in your opinion, is this theater becoming more and more aggressive between the major powers? Unfortunately, it seems like it's gotten more aggressive. The, the world has learned that the United States, the military, relies a lot on their space capabilities. I mean, it's a, it's a force multiplier. It, it provides a lot of capabilities, you know, things like precision guided munitions, communications, surveillance, obviously. And nations see this and say, well, we want to handicap the U.S. We're going to take out space. So it seems like there's been a lot of work to try to deny the United States from, uh, from those space capabilities. So unfortunately, it seems like it's become more aggressive in the last few years. Satellites have moved from being a nice thing to have to becoming the very backbone of our reconnaissance capabilities. They inform our strategic decisions, they win and lose battles, and they also maintain peace by providing all signs with some certainty that the other one isn't launching ICBMs at any moment or building up tanks along the border. But with this resilience the satellites give us, it also provides a weakness. These satellites and their abilities like GPS have become so useful that we've now pinned our military, communications and financial systems upon them. And our entire day-to-day -day now only functions because of these machines, whose external protection is only millimeters thick. An entire way of life is reliant on a theater where if one missile test goes wrong and begins the Kessler runaway, all of it goes down in a matter of hours. 
And if that happens, we'll likely be inaccessible again for many years until we can work out some way to clear up all the debris that these explosions cause. The fact that human beings have had the ability to wipe ourselves out with nuclear weapons for almost 70 years now, yet have chosen not to, does give me some hope that we can operate peacefully in this theatre as well. Thank you so much for tuning into the show this week. I find space and surveillance absolutely fascinating, so it was amazing to be able to take this week and look into a topic that is so often overlooked. As you may be aware, this isn't the first time that we've covered space here on the show. We have another episode focusing on the future of space warfare, with less time spent on surveillance and more time spent on space-based combat capabilities, back as episode 52 of the show. So there would have been a whole bunch of space-based issues that we didn't cover here, and the main reason we would have left that out is because we'd probably already covered it in our previous space piece. So if you liked learning about space today, but are keen to learn a bit more about the space theater, simply scroll down and check out our previous episode on space warfare. If you want to keep up to date when we eventually drop an inevitable third piece on space, or any other content we have coming up, all of our links and content, as well as everything else going on here at the Red Line, will be available on our website, or on Twitter, Reddit, Instagram, Facebook, Discord, or TikTok on the handle at the Red Line Pod. Or if you can to follow me on Twitter, I'm on the handle at MikeElliotOz. Oz in Australia. This show is completely funded by our amazing Patreons. And speaking of our amazing Patreons, I want to thank Bettina Bauer, Tony Z, and Scott Hortel, who are the latest Patreons to sign up as of time of recording. This show is only possible with the support of Patreons like these guys, and we are eternally grateful to them for their support. So if you like what we do here at the show, and you feel like you could spare a couple of dollars, we greatly appreciate it. But for now, this episode on space surveillance is all thanks to you guys. As usual, here are our three book recommendations. The first is The Future of Geography, How Power and Politics in Space Will Change Our World, by this week's guest, Tim Marshall. I've been a huge fan of Tim's works for years now, and this book is amongst his best. Highly recommend you check it out. The second is War in Space, Strategy, Space Power, and Geopolitics, by friend of the show, Bledon E. Bowen, for a detailed look at many of these nations' emerging tactical capabilities. And the third is The Politics of Space Security, Strategic Restraint and the Pursuit of National Interests by James Clay Maltz for a look at the widening scope of players now entering this theatre. I want to give a big thanks to this week's guests, Tim Marshall, Keith Masbach, and George Nakuzi. All of you were absolutely brilliant and a fantastic combination of explainers and analogies. And we're looking forward to having you all back on the show at some point soon. I also want to thank my staff, Wade McCarr, the producer, Perry Grace, Danielle Zivella, Genevieve Donald and May, Nate Ostiller, Nick McNally, Sean Cottle-Lem, Isaac Gibbs, Ahmad Al-Ahmad, Andrew Garbery, and Robbie Sutton, our research assistants and writers, Jamie Tanner, our media director, Francis Leach, our director of Breaking News, Mark Spencer, our second voiceover artist, Derek Henry Flood, our deputy editor, Jonah Gunn, our production assistant, Ross Crabtree, our media advisor, Joe Hawthorne, our audio cleaner, Marissa Rafter, our videographer, and Nick Much, our field correspondent. We are incredibly lucky to have such an amazing staff here at the show. They really are the best of the best. The Red Line will be back in another fortnight with another international episode. But until then, thank you for listening, and good night. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are solely those of Michael, our guests, and the Red Line podcast. They do not represent any government or organization and are solely our own. For more information, please visit theredlinepodcast.com.